My name is Yerne Sekolitz. I am Secretary of the United Nations Commission on International Trade Law, known as UNCITRAL. And today we will be speaking about legislation governing arbitration. And uh, UNCITRAL is a big name in arbitration. If UNCITRAL is known in the world under the name of UNCITRAL, it is perhaps uh, most known in practitioners dealing with, with, with arbitration. Now, when we speak about legislation governing arbitration, we are talking about laws governing the process, the procedure uh, of uh, how arbitration is being conducted and how arbitral awards or decisions are being treated. We are not talking about legislation that governs the rights and obligations of parties involved in contractual arrangements that might contain uh, an arbitration agreement. Uh, such legislation, being the legislation of a country, governs arbitral proceedings that take place in that country that has adopted the law. Uh, and the parties typically choose that country. So to some degree, or to a large degree, the parties control which law will apply to their arbitration by virtue of agreeing on the place of arbitration or the seat of arbitration. That does not mean that the parties or the arbitrators cannot choose to conduct certain portions of arbitral proceedings, such as hearing witnesses, or holding consultations, or inspecting documents or other evidence outside that country. Uh, even if they do these things abroad in, in different countries, even if the majority of those acts are performed in abroad, but the seat of, the agreed seat of arbitration is in a particular country, it will be the law of that country that will govern the process. When the parties negotiate their, their contracts, uh, they uh, first agree on, on the technical aspects and the commercial aspects, the price, the terms of delivery, and, and, and so forth. And inevitably, and typically at the end of the contract negotiations, they, they turn to uh, what will happen if we have a dispute. Uh, and, and this is, I would say, in the majority of cases, literally the last clause they sort out and then they proceed to signing the contract. And when they negotiate that, that clause, there is a certain type of atmosphere which we have to bear in mind. First is that uh, a typical party uh, doesn't have really much knowledge, uh, specialized knowledge about arbitral procedure. So they do not want to get involved or enmeshed in, in discussing uh, arcane points of arbitral procedure, what happens if this happens and something else. So, so they want standardized solutions. They want to be able to agree on certain main points and the rest they leave to the standard rules that they may have agreed upon and the law that will govern the arbitration. And what are those uh, typical uh, points that they might deal with in their arbitration clause? 
First, uh, they are well advised to settle on the place of arbitration or seat of arbitration because that will be the law governing their process. They uh, may wish to choose the arbitral institution uh, whose rules will then govern the process and whose rules will then govern issues such as the appointment of arbitrators, replacement of arbitrators, challenge of arbitrators and, and so forth. Uh, and they are often well advised to choose an arbitral institution, in particular in those cases where they really have, uh, do not have much experience with arbitration. They may also opt for the so-called ad hoc arbitration, where there is no institution providing administrative uh, services to the parties uh, and arbitrators. And in that case, they should, or they are well advised, to agree on the number of arbitrators, on the language of arbitral proceedings uh, and perhaps also the appointment process of the arbitrators should uh, there be a difficulty there. But that's about it. They do not want to get involved in, in further detail for several reasons. One is perhaps a psychological one. The parties at the beginning of the transaction, when they have uh, concluded the contract, they are optimistic about their future cooperation and they don't like to think about what will happen if they have a dispute. It's something like when a couple marries, they don't want to talk about what happens if they would divorce. Some do, but if you do, you really try to make it rather routine rather, uh, instead of uh, something very, very big. And secondly, uh, it is because this is a specialized type of knowledge, uh, if their lawyers, that often participate in contract negotiations would spend a lot of time negotiating s uh, details of arbitration, they would, the parties would get nervous and might even think that the lawyers are over-lawyering the process. Uh, but So in order to simplify this process, to make it as straightforward as possible, it is very good that there be a law that will provide a very good background to this process and that will allow the parties to really deal with this issue simply in a standardized fashion. So uh, let's ask ourselves what should such a law say? What should be its content in order to, uh, to meet the needs, the typical needs of parties involved in, I would say in the first uh, place, international trade, but also in domestic trade. Uh, first, the law should recognize the freedom of the parties to agree to arbitrate or should respect the agreement of the parties to, to arbitrate uh, and that agreement should, the parties should be able to, uh, to reach that agreement in the fashion that they are used to. That agreement should not be subject to overly uh, to, to, uh, to formal requirements that the parties do not expect. Let me give you an example. Uh, the parties uh, often, not often, but may conclude a contract in the following way. One party gives an offer to the other party and the other party, instead of formally adopting or accepting that that offer by a document, by a signed document, just delivers the goods or orally accepts the offer and says, yes, we have a deal. 
Such a contract, if it's a sales contract, an export or an import contract, is perfectly valid. But under some laws, the arbitration agreement enter into in such a way where one party in a tacit way agrees to a contract is not sufficient for a valid arbitration agreement. And that might come to us as a surprise to the parties. So, so, so we should have such rules that, that will naturally require that the parties agree to arbitrate, but that would not be overly formalistic uh, in the formal requirements. Some antiquated laws required, uh, you know, a signed document, uh, certain approvals by third parties, uh, specific reference to the arbitration clause, and so forth. All this is uh, outdated for the needs of the modern commerce. The second feature that a good law on arbitration should have is that uh, it should not contain mandatory rules that in an unreasonable way limit the party's autonomy. Uh, like for example, there were laws, they might even exist uh, in some places, that only citizens of the country may be arbitrators, or that only uh, lawyers admitted to practice in a particular country may represent parties in international arbitration. That is unreasonable. The parties have to be free to choose their arbitrators and to choose their legal advisors, irrespective of where they arbitrate. Uh, thirdly, uh, a law should take account of the fact that sometimes the parties uh, are really very laconic, very short in their arbitration agreements. In particular, when they include them, when they enter into such agreements by uh, in in language that is very, very economical, they might say at the end of the contract nothing but arbitration in Hamburg. Three words, and the underlying law in Germany must provide the minimum set of procedural rules that will allow the parties to commence the arbitral proceedings, that will allow the arbitral tribunal to conduct the process without uh, interruptions, and that the end product, the award, will be enforceable. So, so there must be a minimum set of, uh, of procedural rules. Uh, it should also, such a law, allow the arbitrators to conduct the process in the way they consider appropriate, bearing in mind, of course, the mandatory law, uh, bearing in mind the fundamental uh, principles of justice, the equality of the parties, and, and so forth, but essentially they should be able to shape that process the way they want. And this is extremely important because there is no one model of how to uh, run an arbitration. If the arbitrators and the parties come from, say, the United States, the way they would deal with procedural issues would, be, would, would have a particular, I would say, U.S. flavor. If the parties would come from Egypt and the arbitrators, it would have a, perhaps another flavor. If the parties would come from Russia, it would be yet another variation. And they are all good. They're all legitimate ways of running the process. 
And uh, this is in particular important when you have a mixed arbitration. One party from one legal tradition, the other party from another. Maybe the lawyers are from yet uh, another country and the arbitrators are a mix of different legal traditions. They have to be able to first agree how they will uh, run the process and they should be free as to how they should run the process. So the, the law has to be fairly liberal and not impose undue limitations on on their freedom, of course, respecting the fundamental principles of procedural justice. Uh, next, a good law should provide for solutions when there is a crisis in a process. And a crisis might arise because one party refuses to appoint its arbitrator, or where, where one of the arbitrators behaves inappropriately and one party challenges that arbitrator and there must be someone who will remove that arbitrator if, if appropriate. What if an arbitrator becomes ill or cannot uh, perform uh, his or her duties? Again, there must be a, me a method for, for replacing the arbitrator. And so the law has to have, a, again, a minimum set of, uh, of procedures where the parties can turn if they haven't agreed on something else to the court of the place of arbitration to appoint, remove, replace an arbitrator, for example. Uh, it is also necessary that the law, in the interest of the parties themselves and in the interest of, of respecting public policy, uh, does not allow uh, miscarriage of justice. That's one expression that, that, that I might use. If something goes wrong, if, if the, for some reason there is fraud, there is corruption, uh, one party is being tre treated unfairly, there must be a way how to put this right. So there must be certain supervision there. For example, the arbitral tribunal might overstep the powers it was given by the parties. So one party has to have a way how to approach the court and, and stop that, challenge the jurisdiction of the, of the arbitral tribunal, for example. So, so, so that, that, that has to be in. And lastly, naturally, the parties go to arbitration because they, they, they want a speedy settlement of the dispute and they want an award, a decision that is final and enforceable. So there must be a straightforward, simple way to enforce their award. And again, th there are standards, international standards, uh, established uh, some 50 years ago by the New York Convention, 1958 New York Convention, which, uh, which everybody accepts as suitable standards for uh, enforcing arbitral awards. Now, you can express these principles or these desires, these wishes or these needs in different ways. But there is one particular way of expressing them that is uh, known worldwide, that is acceptable worldwide, and that has in fact been accepted in a large number of jurisdictions worldwide. It is the ancestral model law on international commercial arbitration adopted in 1985 and revised in two respects in 2006. And uh, if a country wishes to have a modern, uh, a modern law on arbitration, it can confidently 
basically copy uh, the UNCITRAL model law into its legislation and it can have, it can be confident that it has a good law because it has been time tested. There is a lot of case law about the UNCITRAL model law. The UNCITRAL itself publishes uh, case law in the six languages of the UN, uh, the, the, the decisions interpreting the model law. So there is a lot of knowledge uh, uh, about the model law. There is also one important aspect of of adopting the model law. Namely, uh, many countries have a desire, an understandable desire, that the parties, the commercial parties, will come to that country to arbitrate. Uh, because uh, choosing a particular country as a place of arbitration is kind of an export of services uh, for that country. It is also a source of prestige of that country. It is also good for uh, parties of that country if people are willing to come to arbitrate to a party and uh, that also means that they have confidence in the legislation and the judicial system of, of the country. Uh, so by adopting the Ancestral Model Law, the countries signal to the world that we have a law that is hospitable to arbitration and you can come confidently to, uh, to our country to arbitrate and that we will provide a, a balanced way how to deal with, with arbitration cases. There will be a certain minimum degree of court supervision and court assistance, but not too much. That is also very important, that the courts are not overly intrusive, that they do not second-guess the arbitrators, and in particular that they, that they do not second-guess the, the substantive decisions or the even the procedural decisions of the arbitral tribunal. I think it is also uh, good to bear in mind that the model law is not a treaty, that it is a model law. That the, uh, any national legislator that adopts it is free to make modifications. And uh, certain minimal modifications can be made, are actually foreseen in the, in the model law. Uh, you have to fill in certain blanks, which laws will have the competence to supervise and assist arbitral processes in, in the country. But often uh, national legislators, uh, when they read the model law, say, well, we don't need this provision because other legislation in, in this country provides for that already. They can say that a certain provision in the model law is self-evident. Why should we put it in? Or they may say that a certain rule in the model law is expressed in a language that is not usual uh, for legislation in that country. So let's change it. Let's leave out certain provisions. Uh, let's change them so that we would uh, make them, uh, we would express the whole thing in, in, our, uh, in the language that, that the citizens of that country are familiar with. And that is a very natural reaction of, of every legislator. But in this particular case, it is important to bear in mind that the law is written not only for domestic parties, but also, and in some cases primarily, for foreign parties, whom you want to convince that this law is good, whom you want to attract to come to arbitrate to your country. And, in, uh, and some countries have the ambition, 
that and, and actually uh, are succeeding in that, 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 that parties that have nothing to do with that particular country, none of the parties is a national of the country, and the contract has nothing to do with that country, they come to arbitrate to a particular country because they like the legal environment. So if you want to provide a law that is that foreign parties and foreign arbitrators and foreign counsel will be comfortable with, you should not succumb to the temptation to redraft or edit the model law. Uh, and, 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 and that is the easiest to do when you restrict the applicability of the, of the law based on the model law to international arbitrations, where at least one party is a foreigner. But some countries, uh, countries have taken the model law and have enacted it in such a way that it governs both international arbitrations as well as domestic arbitrations, uh, arbitrations between two parties from the country. And in this case, the temptation to rewrite and, and edit the model text is the greatest. But in all cases, it is good to, to bear this in mind. And now, perhaps just a few minutes, I'll, I'll, I'll point out to you some of the examples of, of, of the most important provisions of the model law. Uh, one, one such important provision is, is for example, uh, Article uh, 5 of, of the model law, which says, in matters governed by this law, no court shall intervene except where so provided in, in this law. This provision is important for transparency reasons. Foreigners want to be able to read the law and find all instances where, where the court may intervene in the arbitral process in the law itself, without having to undertake an investigation of, uh, of, of other legislation of the country. This is particularly important, bearing in mind what I said in the beginning. The parties want to enter into uh, an, an arbitration clause easily without much investigation and thinking. Uh, and in particular, if they want to arbitrate in a, in a country whose language neither arbitra the arbitrators or the parties understand. So it's, 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 it's doubly important that the law is, is transparent and, and that it, uh, they can uh, find all the answers within the law. Another important uh, provision is uh, Article 4. It's entitled Waiver of Right to Object. It means that the party who considers that certain agreed-upon rule or certain non-mandatory rule of the law has not been respected has to protest immediately. Otherwise, it is deemed to have uh, waived its right to object. That is a very important provision uh, which injects discipline in the arbitral process. The party should not be able to see a technical violation of, of, of a certain provision and then keep it in case it loses the case and then it will say, ha, ah, but you violated such and such technical rule. So you should, if you are unsatisfied with a certain thing, you have to raise this, this immediately. Then Article 7 is of crucial importance. It uh, governs the form of the arbitration agreement. And that article was modified in 2006 precisely in order to lessen the formal requirements uh, for the validity of the arbitration agreement. And it has two options. One is that 
the parties can agree in any way they wish on to arbitrate as long as there is a writing about the arbitration agreement somewhere so ultimately they can even agree orally to arbitrate as long as they in their oral agreement refer to a written arbitration clause and option two goes further it says there is no formal requirement the parties can ultimately uh, agree without any formal requirements on, a, on an export and import contract, the contract will be enforceable, and the same uh, uh, goes for the arbitration agreement. Not that it is advisable for the, countries, uh, f f for the parties to not to write it down. It actually is advisable that they write it down. But should they not, this should not be a stumbling block for the validity of the arbitration agreement. Uh, then there is a, a series of provisions that deal with the appointment of arbitrators, with the challenge of arbitrators, with the replacement of arbitrators, which are the types of provisions which I spoke about, that, that, that this is a minimum set of rules which uh, prevents that an arbitral arbitra process will, will, will come uh, to a standstill stand and, and would not be able to proceed because there is no uh, n no way out. So these provisions, the design of these provisions is to, is to, pro is to allow the, the process to begin and come to an end. Then uh, there is uh, the important chapter four, dealing with the jurisdiction of the arbitral tribunal, which means that the party can challenge the jurisdiction of the arbitral tribunal when it sees that it has overstepped its bounds. If it's at the beginning, the, they have to object to, uh, to the uh, lack of jurisdiction at the beginning. If uh, the arbitral tribunal does something during the process uh, that is not in its power, they have to do it uh, at that time. Otherwise, they, they, they forfeit their right to do so. And they can go straight to the court and, uh, and the court will, uh, uh, will, uh, will, will, will take a decision. If, however, the arbitral tribunal uh, reserve, uh, uh, but one, one important thing is, is, should be borne in mind, that the first decision about an objection to jurisdiction is for the arbitral tribunal to take. And if a party is not satisfied with the decision of the arbitral uh, tribunal, then it can go to court. Either at the time the arbitral tribunal takes that decision, or at the end of the process, if the arbitral tribunal joins the decision on jurisdiction with the decision on the substance of the dispute. Another interesting uh, set of provisions deals with interim measures of protection and preliminary orders, that is in Chapter 4A, which was added in 2006. Namely, in arbitration proceedings, such as in court proceedings, there is a need often on interim decisions, uh, the purpose of which is to prevent inappropriate behavior of the parties to prevent uh, destruction of evidence, to prevent one party taking steps that, will, that might thwart the ultimate enforcement of the, of the arbitral award. And, uh, and these decisions are taken and have effect uh, 
only during the abdominal process. Ultimately, they are merged into the, or they lose effect or the need with the final award. And uh, it is important that the appellate tribunal has the power to take such decisions, and it is also important that, the, that these decisions are enforceable. And the enforceability of these interim decisions has been, um, for the first time, regulated in this Chapter 4A of the Revised Model Law. Um, then there is a, a set of provisions that deal with, uh, with the conduct of, of arbitral proceedings. Uh, they, by the place of arbitration, the language, uh, the, the taking of evidence by experts, by witnesses, how hearings are, uh, are handled, and, and so forth. Uh, it is imp also important to note that the fact that the parties are engaged in an arbitration should not prevent them to go to court also during the arbitral process in order to obtain an interim decision. We have said a minute ago that the arbitral tribunal can take interim decisions. But uh, that is not the only possibility and should not be the only possibility. The parties may wish to go to a court to obtain an interim decision. And they should have both of these avenues open to them. And they are somewhat different. Uh, one difference, for example, is that the arbitral tribunal can take decisions, binding deci interim decisions that are, that are binding only on the parties. Because by virtue of the arbitration agreement being, of the arbitration being based on, on the bilateral agreement, it cannot bind third parties. Whereas if you go to court, you can, the court can issue a decision that is binding on a third party. For example, if you want to uh, freeze a banking account, uh, an arbitral tribunal cannot order a bank to freeze it. Only a court can do so. What the arbitral tribunal can do is only order a party not to remove assets from a particular account uh, or from a particular jurisdiction. But, but that is not uh, binding on the third party. Uh, one very important provision is uh, Article 25. It is entitled Default of a Party. The party cannot obstruct the arbitration process by refusing to participate in the process it had agreed to. Uh, that is very important for the discipline of the, of the arbitration process. If a party refuses to participate, it risks be losing a case because the arbitral tribunal will hear the story only of, of, of one side. So it is in the interest of both parties that they fully participate. And if they don't do so, uh, it is at their own peril. Um, then there is chapter 6 of the model law which deals with the making of the award and how the proceedings end. And there are some technical provisions there, uh, including how the, the, uh, the arbitral award has to be signed, that the parties can also agree to settle their, their, their dispute, and the, in such a case, they may request the arbitral tribunal to issue 
an award on agreed terms which will incorporate the, what the parties had agreed upon. Um, and then uh, chapter 7 deals with the recourse against the arbitral award. And that recourse, in line with what I said earlier, uh, has been crafted very carefully. It allows any party that is unsatisfied with the award to go to court and try to set it aside within a limited period of time. But the reasons on which it can attack the award are only violations of process and not uh, an allegation or an opinion that the decision of the Abdur Tribunal is wrong in substance. Uh, because if the parties could re-argue their case in court after the tribunal has made its decision, they could just as well go to the court and not lose time with the, with the arbitration. It is very important that the content, substance of the Abdur decisions is respected. There is one safeguard though. Uh, if the content of the arbitral decision is repugnant to the fundamental principles of justice, we call it public policy, then the court can set aside the award also for that reason. And that's the gist of chapter 7, which, which deals with uh, applications for setting aside arbitral awards. And lastly, chapter 8 deals with the recognition and enforcement of arbitral awards which is very similar, almost, I would say, a, a, a very similar, f follows the spirit and the content of chapter 6 on the setting aside, which means that uh, if a party has not attacked the award for whatever reason, uh, it missed the time period, it was engaged in negotiations with the other party, and the other party then uh, tries to enforce the award and goes to court, a party can oppose the request for enforcement of the award for the same reasons, basically the same reasons, that it can oppose, uh, that it can ask for the setting aside the award. And these reasons, chapter 7, uh, ch uh, chapter seven and chapter 8, are closely modeled on Article 5 of the 1958 New York Convention, which I understand has also been the subject of a lecture in this uh, wonderful uh, series. Thank you. <laughs>